The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Most holy mystery, open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts as your scripture is read and your word proclaimed, that we might gain a glimpse of your joyous life and join the dance of mother, spirit, and son, now and always. Amen. The lesson today is from Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of God and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. In the fall of last year, uh, during my second week as a chaplain intern, I visited a Muslim patient, <clears throat> and during our time together, um, he asked if I was Christian, and if all chaplains were Christian. I told him I was, and that no, not all chaplains are Christian. <clears throat> he then asked me, and this is why I remember this visit, why do you Christians worship three gods? Now, there are a few things in life that truly frighten me that induce a bit of panic and defensiveness. And unbeknownst to this man, asking me about the Trinity of God was one of those things. I replied, well, we don't. Like you, we worship one God, just differently. Lame response. <laughs> he then said, well, perhaps I'm mistaken. I thought it was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. That's Christian, isn't it? And literally, I looked down at the floor, and internally I began praying, help me, help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. And I took a deep breath, and then I began fumbling my way through a very inadequate explanation of the Trinity. All the things I'd heard as a kid and all the things that I had, had shared with campus students when I was a campus minister at King Avenue. And so I said, like, well, God is like water. Water is, is in three parts. You know, liquid, solid, and gas. God's like that. Or like an egg. The shell, the egg white, and the yolk. God is like an egg. Or a tree, the roots, the trunk, and the branches. But they make up one tree, right? And at this point, my arms are in the air because I'm <laughs> doing some kind of freaky Christian charades. <laughs> it was bad. And the look on his, of confusion on his face only, only deepened, um, and I was personally exhausted. The charades took it out of me, plus I found myself questioning my own beliefs. Like, why can't you articulate this, John, better? And the reason is because it's complicated, and I'm not really sure, uh, yeah. 
And then he asked me, why three? What difference does three make? What difference does three make? It's a good question. It's a really tough question, and one I don't have a definitive answer to offer, then or even now. In fact, I have doubts, and I think that's a solid starting point for a Trinity Sunday sermon. I have doubts. In today's lesson, we're told they worshipped him, but some doubted. They worshipped him, but some doubted. Such an unassuming and authentic and accurate phrase. Absolutely beautiful. Then and now, as we approach God in three persons, worship and doubt, I believe, stand side by side. That the disciples doubted doesn't mean that, that they had no faith or that they didn't believe. They gave their hearts to God in Christ, but in their heads they couldn't, couldn't quite make sense of or understand what was happening. The miracles, the resurrection, all that they had seen. Part of it made sense, but another part did not. The experience was real, and yet the logic, the understanding, it just didn't match. It didn't match the reality of their experience. Words were insufficient. And who among us hasn't had that kind of experience where words fail to describe the experience? I mean, think about if someone said to you, define love. Define love. Define love or explain to another person the love you have for a friend or a spouse or a German shepherd. Make a list, count the ways, and I will speculate after a while, your list begins to sound shallow and superficial because you know at a deep level a list does not even begin to reflect or adequately describe love. Can words ever fully describe and explain love? I doubt it. I believe some things, like love, can be experienced but can never be fully understood or explained or defined. Consider beauty. Recall a time when you were enlivened by the beauty of nature. Warmth enveloped your skin, and you felt a presence that hadn't been there before. Clouds became a kaleidoscope of, of changing colors. Light sparkled and danced on trees, on rocks. If there was a creek nearby, maybe there too. How do you explain that, that warmth? Is it just light rays refracted by dust in the air and affected by the angle of the sun in relationship to you? I doubt it. Surely that kaleidoscope of color is more than a, a visible mass of, of condensed water vapor floating in the atmosphere. Some things like beauty can be experienced, but they can never be fully or adequately expressed. 
Beauty is always more than words. How many of you have ever held a newborn child? If you haven't, you should. (laughs) And recall that moment, those tiny wrinkled fingers, that smell, the warmth of that child's breath on your cheek, the hiccups, the heartbeat. How do you explain that? What words can describe that moment? Sure, we know the biology and physiology of reproduction, but we still can't wrap our heads around it. Is that child simply the end result of reproduction? Is that how you would describe that moment? I held in my hand the end result of reproduction. (laughs) I doubt it. Maybe for some of you, you would, but I doubt it. (laughs) We don't look at that little one and see the result of a biological process. In that new life, we see and we declare a miracle. In those three examples, we see experiences that are bigger, more beautiful, and beyond what our minds can fathom and make sense of. We love and we doubt. We bask in beauty and we doubt. We hold new life in our hands and we doubt. In these contexts, doubt is not a deficiency. It is a declaration that we have glimpsed and touched the divine. And in those moments, we realize the experience is greater than our words, greater than our words can ever express or our minds can grasp. In the end, the experience is what we want most because it changes and transforms our lives. It changes us and transforms us in ways that words and explanations and concepts never will. If that's true about relationships and sunsets and babies, love, beauty, and new life, how could it not also be true about the nature of God? We worship and we doubt. We experience the grandeur of creation, but we cannot make sense of it. And that's okay. Despite the Trinitarian math of three equals one and one equals three, God is beyond words, explanation, and understanding. Always and forever. If the Trinity is about anything, it is about love and beauty and new life. We may not be able to explain it, but we certainly know it when we experience it. So what difference does three make? Anyone? It makes all the difference in the world, to my life and to your life. However, I, we, because we are in this together, cannot necessarily explain it in words. 
And that is perfectly and beautifully acceptable because faith and doubt stand side by side. Faith without doubt is not faith. Period. And we rest in Christ's promise, I am with you always. So that where words and understandings fail, and they always will fail, we know that we are not alone. I am with you always. And in truth, that's not a bad place to end a sermon on Trinity Sunday. Remember, I am with you always. Thanks be to God. Amen.